So it's good to be back with you, Redeemer. If you have your Bibles, we're going to worship the Lord uh, through his word. And so I want to invite you to open up to Mark. We're in Mark chapter 2. I'll read 13 through 17. I'll give you uh, maybe five seconds to find it, and then uh, we'll jump right in. And Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Amen. Let's pray. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall last forever. Father, we pray that your word, as it has been read and as it now will be preached, that it would not wither, it would not fade, but that it would bear fruit a hundredfold, now lasting into eternity. Father, I pray for those among us who don't know you, who might believe that their sins disqualify you from your kingdom. I pray that as we learn about your kingdom, and it being tailor-made just for sinners. I pray that we would respond to this call in the way that Levi does, that he leaves it all behind and he follows the one who calls. Would you bless us now, we pray for Christ's sake, amen. So this summer we had the chance to go to New York and this was our first time, uh, it's not our first time going to New York, but it was our first time uh, doing the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island. And uh, we visited Ellis Island, and it, it just it shook me up for several hours, uh, mainly for three reasons, right? You, whether you know it or not, Ellis Island was, is one of 70 immigration stations uh, throughout the country, and it was open from 1892 to 1954. And believe it or not, that uh, about 40 million Americans, or 40% of all Americans, can trace their genealogy through that one immigration station. And so we are truly a nation of immigrants. That unless you're Native American, uh, that none of us are from here. We're from somewhere else. And there's a great chance that if you're here right now, that your relatives came through Ellis Island. Second, I could not shake this idea that while European and Middle, uh, middle, I guess the Middle Easterners and Asians were migrating to America on those ships that just 30 years prior, right, the last slave ship arrived in Mobile. 30 years before Ellis Isle opened up, the last slave ship landed in Mobile. And so as they show pictures of just how horrible it was for immigrants to travel on ships, there's another narrative that if you were a person of color, that your ships were not uh, a piece of cake. 
there was a sense that you were taken from your land. You didn't want to be here. And so if you go to the museum, you're going to see that parallel that while Europeans and Asians and those were coming here for the land of promise, people of color were taken and brought here in conditions far worse. And you see that parallel if you go there. The other thing that stayed with me that day was the 29 questions that if you've not seen it, then they actually show real documents that these millions of immigrants were coming in and they were all asked the same series of questions, 29 questions. And one would be your name, your sex, your age. But then they got really personal, right? Your background, what skill do you have, right? You can't come to America and not have a skill. How much money is in your pocket? That if you didn't have $30, you could not just come here and immigrate here. That your background, what's, what's in your background, right? Are there felon, are felonies and, and misdemeanors? You had to disclose that because if they got proof that you, you, you were deceiving, deceiving them, you were taken. On top of that, there were the medical examinations where you actually had to have a medical exam or they examined your mental state, that as you waited in line and waited to be processed, there were doctors who were looking to see if you would be uh, angered, easily angered, easily persuaded, uh, uncontrollable. There were also physical examinations where they looked at your hair to see if there were lice. They looked at your skin to see if there were sores. They looked at your eyes to see if they showed any symptoms of illness. They looked at your teeth. They looked at your posture. Just if, and, and here's the thing, that while Ellis Island was known for many, right, known for many as the Isle of Hope, there were some it was known as the Isle of Tears. Why? Because if you had a defect, you weren't allowed in. If you were sick, you weren't allowed in. If you didn't have adequate money in your pocket, to live a self-sustaining life, you weren't allowed in. That if you did not have a, a trade or a skill, you were not allowed in. And so you see images, right, of whole families where everyone makes it in except for granddad because granddad can't walk that well. Everyone makes it in except for this child because this child has some type of disease. And as much as we were letting people in, we turned a great deal of people away. Our immigration plan at the time was to get good people with good backgrounds, with good health and good skills and good reputations into this good land. Now, here's the question. Does the kingdom of God work that way? Is Jesus out seeking the good people. Is his kingdom full of people who have it all together, people who have nothing in their past that they're ashamed of, people who have their plan figured out. I know exactly what I'm here to do. I know where I'll move. People who have people to vouch for them. Does the kingdom of God work that way? Now, that's the question I want to linger out there for a minute. Now, to get at this text, I want us to work through uh, the, the first point is I want us to see the important question that's asked by the Pharisees. I think Mark chapter 2, if you want to look at a broader heading, it's the chapter of questions. 
the kingdom of God comes, and when it comes, people are littering Jesus with questions because it's coming in a way that, that they did not either think it would come or it's coming, it's throwing them off. They expected it to look one way, and it looks a, a different way. And then so they, they come to Jesus, and they're starting to ask questions. If you were here two weeks ago when Brian preached the passage before me, it was prompted by a question. And it's in chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. The scribes were questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God? They see Jesus forgiving someone, and they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Who can forgive sins but God? Why is he talking like that? That's the question. If you look at where we're going to go next week in, in chapter 2, verse 18, now here's the scene that, that John the Baptist's disciples are fasting, and the, the Pharisees, their disciples are fasting, and the people look at Jesus' disciples, and they're not fasting. And the people say, they actually say, how is it that John's disciples and the, the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Now it's the people asking Jesus a question. Then you go down to the passage after that in verse, chapter 2, verse 18, uh, chapter 2, verse 24. It's the Sabbath day, and Jesus' disciples are going through the grain fields, and they're plucking heads of grain. And the Pharisees now say something to Jesus. They say, look, why are your disciples doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? You see three questions back to back to back, and then it comes to a head at chapter 3 when Jesus enters a, syn a synagogue on the Sabbath day. And there's a man who is sick, and it says the Pharisees watched Jesus to see if he would heal him. And this is where Jesus flips the script. He doesn't wait on them to ask, them, ask him a question. He actually asks a question. He says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm or to save a life or to kill? And the text says that they were silent. And this is when Jesus gets angry. Now, do you know why he gets angry? He says, for a whole chapter, I've entertained your questions. You've asked me about fasting. You've asked me about the Sabbath. You've asked me about who can forgive sins. And I answer all of them with grace. And now when I ask you a question and you don't answer, that's when Jesus gets angry. Because you can dish it out, but you can't take it. And he actually calls that a hardness of heart. And in that moment, the Bible says that that is when they set it in their hearts to destroy Jesus. And in our passage this morning, it's a question. And here is the question. It's, it's in verse 16. Why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? All of chapter 2 and part of chapter 3 is questions. And notice, he answers them all, which means that he knows the kingdom is coming and it's confusing and perplexing. And he's actually gracious enough to explain and to answer. Now, who are the Pharisees? Who are the ones who ask this question? Pharisee comes, what we think comes from a Hebrew word that means to separate. And it's applied to these religious leaders who had a form of holiness, right? That, that, that they had a form of holiness that was caught up 
in a lot of externals. They knew the moral law. They knew the ceremonial law. And it wasn't just that they tried to keep that, but they also came up with this oral tradition around the law. And they came up with these other rules that they would keep these rules so that it would not keep them from breaking this rule. So they were kind of the, the, the rule keepers for the day. And here's the thing. If you were living then, you, we would not necessarily think that they were prideful, right? Jesus, we would look at them and think that they were really holy. And Jesus kind of shows up and starts to expose the holes in their holiness. And then you have the tax collectors. Now, when we think about tax collectors, do not think about that in Jesus' day. We have a digitized system, y'all. Y'all know that? That right now, Uncle Sam gets his taxes before you get your money. Right? When you get your paycheck, it's gone. And if you don't pay your taxes, guess what Uncle Sam can do? He can get inside of your bank account and take his money back, right? And nobody has to track you down. Like, they can send them, but you're going to pay taxes, and there's no way around it. In Jesus' day, that was not the case, that they actually had to send out a lot of tax collectors. And here's what we see in, in this chapter. Jesus decides to go back to the sea and there's a, a man he encounters named Levi who's in a tax booth. And what we think is happening there is that Levi's in a tax booth, and he's around that sea, and he is taxing people. If you want to fish on this, from this land and this lake and this sea, well, guess what? you got to pay taxes on it. And so they had a tax booth, like a station right there, where if you caught this, you pay this. Now, what do we know about Levi? I mean, think about his name. Isn't that one of the tribes of Israel? And it's not just any tribe. It's, it's the priestly tribe. It, it's the tribe. It, it, if, if some commentators are right, that they believe that this is probably a true Levite, a person who was supposed to be working in the temple, who was supposed to be handling the sacred things of the Lord, who was supposed to make his living off of the tithe that Israel would give, who, whose inheritance and portion was the Lord himself. And now you have a Levite, possibly, who is not working in the temple, but who's in a tax booth. And think about it, in, in, in Jesus' day, the way that Rome would do it, they would hire out a fellow Jew to take taxes from Jews. And so if you were a Jew and you caught a Jewish man named Levi who was working for Rome to take your, your, your money, and we believe that there was bribery and extortion. The way tax collectors made their money was collecting what was due Rome, and anything they got on top of that, they could keep. They had a quota to meet. And that's why when John the Baptist preaches to tax collectors, what does he say? Take no more than you're supposed to. Why? Because the occupation was broken. It was consumed with theft and greed. And here you have a man whose name is Levi, who is not working in the temple. He's in a tax booth. And the Pharisees' laws declared that if you walk into the house of a tax collector, you were unclean. Why? Because it was presumed that he's a thief. And what he has purchased in his house was purchased through thievery, and therefore he has broken the law, and what you're sitting on is furniture. You're in a house that has been purchased illegally. 
that they actually gave other Jews permission to lie to Pharisees about their income. And then you have sinners. So it's not just Pharisees, it's not just tax collectors, it's these other sinners, these other lawbreakers, probably people who were indifferent to the ceremonial law, indifferent to the moral law, who were not trying to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. They were Jewish by birth, but not by, they just didn't embrace this religion. Now, when you lay that, all of that background on top of this Jesus fellow who shows up, and goes into the house of a man named Levi, and he bought stuff, presumably through theft, and his house is unclean, and the Pharisees who by nature are separatists, who look at Jesus show up, now you understand the question. Why does he do this? How dare him? And here's the thing, do not dismiss their question because of who's asking. I actually think it's a good question. Just like all the questions leading up, it's a good question. Like, why do your disciples pick grain on the Sabbath when they were, we were told in the Old Testament to not work on the Sabbath? Like, like why, do your, your, why is Jesus moving towards sinners and liars and perjurers and adulterers and murderers? Like, why are you at that table when if I open up my Bible and read Psalm 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, who does not stand in the way of sinners, who does not sit at the table with scoffers. Think about that. Jesus just walked in the way of the tax collector, stood and talked to him and called him, and then went inside of his house and sat at the table with him. Now think about Psalm 26, where David says, I do not sit with false men, nor do I consort with the wicked. I hate the company of evildoers. Proverbs 4, do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of evil. There are passages from Ezra, Nehemiah, and Leviticus, and they all scream separation, 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 separation. And so when they ask this Jesus, when they ask Jesus, how are you doing this? They're doing this because parts of their Bible say you don't sit at the table with scoffers. It's a good question. It's a really good question. And here's what's going through their mind. Is it Psalm 1 or is it Jesus? Is it, is it Solomon and what Solomon wrote about the way of the wicked, or is it what I see right here? Is it what Nehemiah and Ezra says, you will have no share in the inheritance because you're wicked? Is it that, or is it this Jesus, fellow? This is an ethical conundrum. Here's the question. What would you do if you saw John Piper in a trap house? I mean, let's, let's be honest, right? All right, what's a trap house, right? <laughs> what is a trap house, right? You might sell drugs in a trap house. You might move illegal guns in a trap house. And there might be some other illegal stuff all going down in the trap house. And what if you saw your favorite theologian your favorite pastor, 
in there laughing and eating and hanging out. You got to go before the elders, right? (laughs) And you know what? I'm not talking about what you would think on your holy day. I'm not talking about what you would think on your missional engagement with the world, my sanctified day where I've been in the scripture. I'm talking about what would be your first thought that crossed your mind if you were to see your pastor somewhere where he should not be, right? What would you think? Oh, I'm going to tell Miss Karen, right? (laughs) I'm going to go call the elder, you know, like, but what you, you know, you would say, brother, that's not a good look for you. You would look at me sideways. And that's the only thing I need you to feel at this moment. They are not in left field to ask this question. Because holiness and otherness and set-apartness, that is a part of the heart of God. This is a good question. Now, the second thing is, is I think, the important answer. Jesus does respond. He is not angry, right? He, he engages that question. And I love what he chooses to answer their question with. He actually uses a proverb. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Right there, that's the proverb. Now, this is not a proverb in the book of Proverbs. But this is a proverb that we have evidence came from four different non-biblical sources, which means that I could tell you this. You teach a man to fish, he eats one time. You, you show him how to fish, he eats what? For a lifetime. I could say a picture is worth a what? thousand words, right? I could say it takes a whole village to raise what? You just proved my point. These are all proverbs that we use day in and day out, or at least that we're aware of. And so what we think Jesus does is he borrows from a proverb of the day to to give them an answer. And here's the thing about proverbs. This is not a wrought, trite response. Proverbs, by definition, they're linguistic tools used to give you insight on something that is complicated, to simplify what is complex. So I could say, if my daughter was going to get married, baby girl, are you sure this is the one? Make sure this is the one. Are you sure? What is his character like? I could go on and on and on, or there's a proverb for that. You measure a thousand times and you cut once. You get it? What the proverb is doing is taking this long theological conversation that you might want to have and explain it. And they're saying that, wait a minute, think about a board. This board, you got that that beam needs to be 12 foot, 12 feet. If you cut it 11 and a half, I don't care what you do, that will, you can never put that back on there. Therefore, if you're the carpenter, you need to measure a thousand times because once you cut it, you cannot put wood back on it. Here's what Proverbs do. They engage the other side of the brain. And that's exactly how Jesus answers the question. See, Tim Keller says in his book on Proverbs, he says, Proverbs are like hard candy and jawbreakers. That the only way to enjoy a jawbreaker is not to try to bite it and eat it fast. It will break your teeth. 
But for a jawbreaker, you have to let it linger there. You have to salivate and actually enjoy it. And as you enjoy it, that is when you get the flavors from it. See, I bet some of you read this passage and it did not cross your mind that I need to slow down. This is a proverb. It's a linguistic tool used by the master teacher to explain a complex question. And that is exactly what he does. He answers their question with a proverb, which means he's saying to the Pharisees, brother, this isn't simple. If you really want to understand what's going on right here, you got to like think about it and linger on it and, 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 and meditate on this. And so he tells them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, we have ample evidence to know that Jesus knew that there were physicians in his day. For example, how many of you are in the medical profession? you might take what we call the Hippocratic Oath. You know that oath is after a man by the name of Hippocrates, who is the father of medicine? And do you know when he lived? 490 years before Jesus. So we know with the spread of Roman culture, and Greek culture, he was Greek, and they were taking over, anyway, we know that there were doctors in Jesus' day based on regular history. We also know in Mark chapter 5, we're going to read about it several months from now, but there's a woman who has an issue of blood. You know what Mark says? She suffered for 12 years under many physicians. You get it? It's the same word. Now, here's what's different. In Jesus' day, there were no hospitals. Hospitals did not, they were not invented in mass until several hundreds of years after Jesus. You know how people saw the doctor? The doctor came and saw them. The doctors came to your own house that you summoned the doctor when you got sick and the doctor made a house call. And Jesus is telling the Pharisees that when you were born, the doctors came to your rescue. That when your children get sick, the doctors come into your house. That some people in society, they don't separate and run from trauma. They mediate and they run to it. And you have a category for this already. And he says, well, guess what? You already have the category for physical doctors who come to your house and make house calls to heal you. He says, well, guess what? You can call me a doctor. And I stop in house calls and I visit sick people who are being eaten up by their sins. You see the proverb. He wants them to work that proverb until they can see that not everyone separates from brokenness. Some people move toward it to heal it. Some people learn diseases. Some people learn drug interaction. Some people learn to recognize symptoms of sickness. 
and they actually show up to treat you. If you have that category for someone who cares for the body, then what are you, what's the premium for someone's soul? How would you feel if a doctor didn't show up when you wanted them? What would happen? It would be loss of life. But what happens if no one moves towards you in your sin? There's a loss of your eternity with the Lord. And Jesus wants them to make the jump. If physicians come and heal the body, should I not come and heal the soul? And that's exactly what he's doing. He says, call me the doctor. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Because no one is running towards the broken. No one is having dinner with sinners. That we're leaving them to perish in their sins. And I'm here right now. It reminds me of a song that I heard my mom and dad playing when I was a kid. And it was sang by the Georgia Mass Choir. And it was, come on in my room, ooh, ooh. Come on in my room, oh, oh. Jesus is my doctor, and, and he writes out all of my scriptures. Uh-uh. He gives me all of my medicine in my room. Right, you get it? Right? Now, here's the thing. That's the Georgia Mass Choir. And if, if you go YouTube it and watch this little old lady get on the scene, you know what she's talking about? She's talking about her precious Jesus who comes to visit her in her own room. That's my doctor. That's the one who will heal me. And what Jesus says, I am he. You get it? That's what he says. And some of y'all are, are old enough to remember that some of y'all were born and it was not in a hospital. It was in your house. And a doctor with a brown bag or a black bag came and delivered you. This isn't so far-fetched from this reality that doctor makes house calls. And what Jesus says is, you call me the doctor. I do that. Now, here's the thing. He doesn't just say this with his words. His whole behavior in this passage is not only saying it, but showing it. If you had to prove to the world that your kingdom was a kingdom for sinners and that you call them and you seek them out, then what better place to go than not to the temple, but to the tax booth? What better place to go than beside the sea to a man who lives off of robbery? What better thing to do than to call him, of all people, to be one of your closest followers? This call on Levi's life is not a call to just come and listen. It's a call to pack it up and follow me and be one of my nearest disciples. And then, how would you prove it? And you would go into his house and you would tell him to invite all of your tax collecting friends and sinners, all the people you roll with. I want them all in the same house, and we're going to sit down and have a meal together. If you wanted to send a message to the world that your kingdom is for sinners, 
what better candidate do you have than this guy right here? His kingdom is for sinners, and he is the doctor who makes house calls. You know that? And so what Jesus is saying is this. Separation is a part of the heart of God. But so is mediation. And if you think God is only separate and holy and he is not loving and kind, the image of God that you've constructed in your mind is just that. It's your own image of God. What Jesus is saying, when there is separation with no empathy towards mediation, then what you have is a deviation from the heart of God. All separation and no mediation is deviant. That is not the heart of God. And so for every passage that you could say where God is holy and other and different and set apart, you can also find passages that say he is merciful and tender and kind, not wanting anyone to perish. That you can say God is holy and other, but you also have to say, but God took on flesh and became like you and me. You can say that God will by no means clear the guilty, but you have to say he pardons the guilty in Christ. So what Jesus is saying is you're emphasizing one side of the heart of God. And you're minimizing the other side. God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. That is separate. Get out of my face. I'm too holy for you to dwell here. And God says, I will come and rescue you. You get it? That one little word, it's not or. It's not or. It's not Jesus or what they're saying. It's Jesus complimenting what they're saying. This one three-letter word, and, you need to have and in your category. And the Pharisees are all about separation, and there is no mediation. And therefore, it's deviant. Jesus shows up. My kingdom is for sinners. Here's my question. I want to finish this up here. How do you respond? What's the proper response to a kingdom that is for sinners? Here's the first thing. It means that you have to contemplate this. You notice he gives them a proverb so that every time they see a doctor, it's supposed to trigger something. That every time you go to the emergency room, it's supposed to trigger something. Every time you get a cold, it's supposed to trigger something. Every time you need to get a flu shot, it's supposed to trigger something. Every time you need to get your yearly checkup, it's supposed to trigger something. That as you go to doctors to take care of the body, here is what Jesus says. That is a window into the doctor you need for your soul. And what Jesus says, in my kingdom, the only qualified people are the unqualified. And if you think you're qualified, you are disqualified. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's upside down. 
And I know that we want America at Ellis Island to be a place where we let the good people in, to be a place where we let the, the together people in. We, they wanted it to be a place where we let the productive people in, where we let the healthy people in. And Jesus says, I'm at the turnstile and I let no one in who's healthy. If you're not broken, you don't get in. If you think you work to earn it, you are disqualified. If you think you have it all together, you are denied. He says, my kingdom is upside down. It works differently than everything you see everywhere else in the world. It's tailor-made for sinners. And here's the truth. Jesus never had one single meal when he wasn't eating with sinners. When he went into the Pharisee's house, he was eating with sinners. When he broke bread with the disciples the night before he was betrayed, he was eating with sinners. When he walked on the Palestinian roads, he was talking to sinners that, that every single person he encountered were all sinners. It's a matter of who knows it. He says, you got to think about that. The second thing, how do we respond? Is we stop trusting in ourselves and our righteousness. Martin Luther says, God receives none but those who are forsaken. He restores to health none but those who are sick. He gives sight to none but the blind and life to none but the dead and saintliness to none but who are sinners and wisdom to none but who are fools. In short, he has mercy on none but the wretched and gives grace to none but who are in disgrace. So what is Jesus saying? The only way in. The only way to grow, the only way to belong in his kingdom is to humble yourself and to see your unfitness. So we turn, we stop, we turn in faith and be transformed. This kingdom doesn't leave us as we are. That as you enter this kingdom, Jesus says, I will change you. You trust and follow me and I will change you. And you see this in Levi. Levi, this man who was a tax collector, but he didn't stay that way. He left the tax collector's booth. And here is what we know. When you read the parallel accounts of this in Mark 2 and Luke 5 and Matthew 9, you know who we think Levi is? The same guy who wrote to you and I the gospel of Matthew. His name was changed. From Levi to Matthew, which means God's gift. And he, write, he takes these accounting skills to give us an accurate accounting of taxes. And he gives you one of the most accurate gospels of Jesus. That is Jesus transforming this man and, and following Jesus. And he was never the same. That Jesus says, when you enter into my kingdom with your brokenness and faith in me, I will not leave you like you were. I will change you, and you will be different, and you will be better. I promise you, I will relentlessly pursue change in your life. The next thing is imitation. It's not just transformation. Imitation. That Jesus says, the servant is not greater than the master. 
that if Jesus went into table fellowship with sinners, who should be at our tables? And so part of you is right. Pastor L, why are you in the trap house? The other side of it is, Pastor L, why are you not in the trap house? <laughs> not by yourself, right? We're going to be wise and, and go out two by two as Jesus sent the disciples out, right? He sends them out two by two because he knows, man, some of y'all are going to fall and be tempted, but we're going to send you out two by two. When you weak, brother, she's strong. When you're strong, she's weak, right? Why aren't we? Why do we measure holiness by what we abstain from and not with who we engage with? Last thing is celebration. That Jesus goes to this party and he gives them something real to party about. That salvation has come to that home and there is more joy over one person who repents than over the 99 who need no repentance. This is a party, and they are foreshadowing the kingdom to come where there is joy when we see people move from darkness to light. And I think we miss out on joy in the Christian life because we miss out on table fellowship with the weak and the scandalous. My longing is that we would be people who love grace, who love the kingdom that's tailor-made for sinners, that we would contemplate that and believe that, that we would receive that on our own and for ourselves, that we would be moved to emulate that, and that we would throw really good parties when we see unbelievers coming to faith. Let's pray. Father, we bless you, and we love you, and we thank you that your kingdom is for sinners. Might we say what Paul say, says, that you came for sinners of whom we are the foremost, but you have given grace to show your mercy and kindness to those who would believe. Would this be the story of our lives, that we come to you broken and with our sin, and you do not turn us away. You welcome us and you change us. Father, make us those who love grace and who truly believe that you have come for the sick. You're the great physician, and we love you and worship you in Christ's name. Amen.